Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 38, the link between crashes at Newark Airport in the 50s and Jimmy Doolittle's Clearways. I've been spending quite a bit of time converting to a tailwheel rating and at my age and skill level, that's been a long slog. It's one of the things to understand the physics, the center of gravity is behind the two main wheels, for example. However, it's a completely different thing to put that into practice. Eventually, my atrophying noggin managed to get around the seat of pants flying required and my rating is secured. But as all tailwheel aviators know, that means very little. When you're landing one of these frisky little beasts, you're only as good as your last landing and lurking is the dreaded ground loop. The training was conducted in a small lightweight cruiser, sports cruiser, built in South Africa called the Skyreach Bushcat, which pretty much acts like a bushcat when it comes to the slightest crosswind. It responds like a scalded feline of the felt. There are a couple of videos of the conversion training on my YouTube channel, which is called Des Latham. Suspiciously unimaginative and somewhat narcissistic, but that's what the ponytailed marketing manager suggested. So because of this recent aviation activity, it's meant less time to produce this podcast. I'm trying to up the episodes after complaints from listeners that the updates are too few. Apologies. Despite being all quiet on the Western Front, a couple of listeners reached out, and thanks in particular to Alison. Your comments and suggestions were well received. So this episode, we're going to take a look at commercial airliners that have hit obstacles near runways, and how three accidents in the small town of Elizabeth in New Jersey in 1951 and 1952 led to rules about clearways and rezoning. It's important, though, to stress how the rules have changed, which have improved safety, particularly with regard to these clearways. Take one of the earliest examples was the 1933 Imperial Airways Russleyd incident on the 30th of December 1933, when an Avro 10 collided with a radio mast at the town of Russleyd, West Flanders, Belgium, and crashed, killing all 10 people on board. The Avro 10's registration was Golf Alpha Bravo Lima Uniform, nicknamed Apollo, and it entered service with Imperial Airways in May 1931. Apollo, the Avro 10, departed Cologne at 12.20 local time, 20 minutes later than scheduled. A thick fog hampered the flight, and the pilots headed out on a track to the north of the normal route. They appeared to be blissfully unaware of the threat that awaited. Less than an hour later, at 13.15, the aircraft was cruising at only 250 feet when it hit a guy wire of the 870-foot-tall Rosalie radio mast. The force of the strike demolished the top section of the mast, and the Avro 10 lost a wing and crashed. Four workers at the radio station rushed to help those on board the aircraft, joined by local villagers. At least one passenger was seen to survive the crash, but in a horrible moment, before the rescuers could save them, there was an explosion, and the aircraft burnt up despite valiant attempts by the rescuers to get those on board out or perished. Thirteen of the rescuers suffered serious burns that were so committed. The scene must have been apocryphal. Later, King Albert I of Belgium awarded Camille van Hove the Civic Cross First Class for his efforts in attempting to rescue the victims. Van Hove was still in hospital in Bruges, recovering from his burns at the time of the award. Nine other rescuers were paid cash rewards. In those days, pilots did not have any navigational aids. They relied on landmarks and the stars for navigation, and the two pilots had unknowingly flown off track. Then the next year, on the 25th of October 1938, the Kaima airline crash took place on the opposite side of the world when an Australian National Airways Douglas DC-2 nicknamed Kaima registration Victor Hotel Uniform Yankee Charlie flying from Adelaide to Melbourne hit the western slopes of Mount Dandenong 
while approaching Essendon Airport through heavy fog. All 18 on board died instantly. The 18 being 14 packs, the captain, first officer and air hostess, as they're known back in the day, and a cadet pilot who operated the radio during the flight. Among the passengers was Australian Member of Parliament Charles Hawker. So the flight took off from Adelaide at 11 hours 22. As it entered the airspace around Melbourne, it came across a heavy cloud layer, extending from 400 feet to 1,500 feet, which made visual navigation difficult. Later, investigators believed the crew were confused when they spotted at town through a gap in the clouds. It was Sunbury, not Dalesford, leading them to believe that they were around 19 miles behind where they actually were on their flight plan. What investigators pointed out later was that had the flight crew cross-referenced their ground speed with the previous landmarks, they would have realised that they were lost and that it could not have been Sunbury. Speed, time and distance. It's of course easy to comment after all these things, but even PPL pilots like me have learned to time waypoints accurately based on ground speed and track. The DC-2 overshot Essendon and the heavy fog obscured a serious threat. Mount Dandenong was dead ahead and they struck this obstacle a few hundred metres from the summit. Exactly what happened in the last few minutes before the crash is disputed. There are claims that the pilots may have seen the mountain coming and tried to turn the aircraft away, inadvertently making the situation worse by adjusting from a flight path which could have flown the aircraft through a gap between two peaks to a path directly into one. There's also strong evidence that the pilots were lost because the radio operator had asked the controller at Essendon to give them a radio bearing to the airfield, and only seconds later, all plane signals ceased. These were the days before cockpit voice recorders and data recorders. An Air Accident Investigation Committee was chaired by Colonel Murdoch and started work on the 30th of October 1938. The committee blamed the air crew for failing to keep track of their path and suggested the implementation of a radio range system, which I'm reliably informed was 32 megahertz. That sort of contraption. The crash highlighted something else. During the inquiry, it emerged that sinister internal squabbling was afoot, and this had had an impact on aviation safety. Royal Australian Air Force Officer Eric Harrison told the committee that Civil Aviation Board and RAAF Board member Melville Langslow had been slashing costs, which had led to delays in rolling out safety beacons at the bigger airports of Australia. He was indirectly accused of causing the accident. Naturally, Langslow was furious, but revenge is a dish best served cold, they say, and when he was appointed as Secretary at the Department of Air the following year, he began to exact said revenge on Royal Australian Air Force Officer Harrison. Apparently, Chief of the Air Staff Vice Marshal Stanley Goebel had to step in to shield Safety Inspector Harrison. The revenge-seeking got so out of hand. There is a propensity for bureaucrats to regard their turf as a kind of feudal empire, and nothing is more destructive than a bureaucrat scorned. The politicking then was so bad, all further discussion regarding Kaima and what to do was stalled. It took another 40 years after the crash to erect a memorial commemorating the incident and the 18 passengers. There was so much bad political blood. But safety did improve after the crash, including a requirement for flight checking officers to monitor each commercial flight in Australia, and for ATC to advise the pilots on such things as position, weather, and alternative airports for diversions. Then how about the loss of the Pennsylvania Central Airlines Flight 410 on Friday, June 13, 1947? A special one for the Triskaidekaphobians out there.
This would lead to a significant rule change, which was the introduction of minimum en route and approach altitudes in the U.S., which up until then had been set by each company or airline. As a matter of practice, air traffic control clearances were delivered by the company communication station to the pilot instead of there being a published set of minima. In this case, the pilot had asked for clearance over the western tip of the Blue Ridge Mountains, otherwise known as the Arcola Range. There had been delays in departure and the pilots were trying to speed up their arrival. Get their writers. 410 was an intercontinental flight from Chicago to Norfolk in Virginia with multiple stops on the way including Cleveland, Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C. The plane didn't make it past West Virginia Blue Ridge Mountains on the way to Washington, plowing into the Western Ridge control flight into terrain or CFIT. The Douglas DC-4 had 50 passengers and crew on board. No one survived, becoming the second worst airplane accident in the U.S. up to then. It was the shock of that incident that led to the crackdown on en route altitudes. So let's dig just a little deeper. Pennsylvania Central Airlines Flight 410 departed Chicago just after lunch on Friday the 13th, June 1947, heading for Norfolk, Virginia, with these scheduled stops, Cleveland, Pittsburgh and Washington. The pilots had to zigzag past thunderstorms on the leg from Chicago to Cleveland, but the second leg to Pittsburgh was logged as uneventful. They left Pittsburgh after a short stop, which included a brief discussion between ATC and the pilots about the weather. Then all radio contact was lost at about 1800 hours 13. Flight 410 had hit the western edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains, approximately two miles away from the Shenandoah River at an elevation of 1,425 feet. The follow-up investigation concluded pilot error had caused the crash. They had descended below the minimum altitude for which the flight had received clearance without adequate ground references. What has also been revealed is that there weren't proper minimums being applied in the U.S. at all. Investigators found that the pilot had violated company rules because the use of this alternative he had asked for was not sanctioned by the airline, and the pilot was not qualified to fly the route he had asked for. Secondly, the company dispatcher hadn't raised any questions when the pilot asked for this route, and thirdly, the ATC was not qualified to deviate from the minimums established by the company. Flight rules were obviously changed. From then on, any decision about what was minimum height was going to be instituted as a federal rule. No longer could each airline decide for itself. Soon the concept spread around the world. So in 1947, the Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB, established minimum en route and approach altitudes, which were made mandatory for all U.S. carriers. It's time now to take a close look at three accidents in the small town called Elizabeth, located close to New Jersey's Newark International Airport that we're going to change aviation regulations regarding zoning and clearways, amongst other rules. The first crash took place on December 16, 1951, when a Miami Airlines flight from Newark to Tampa hit a warehouse in an industrial stretch of the Elizabeth River. All 56 passengers and crew died. Witnesses described seeing the Curtis C-46 commander plane belching smoke after takeoff. The plane lost altitude swept low over Elizabeth CBD, stalled and crashed into the warehouse. Parts of the plane skidded right through that building into the river, Elizabeth. One person on the ground was injured. A few weeks later, on January 22, 1952, an American Airlines Convair CV240, en route to Newark from Syracuse, crashed into a row of homes on Williamson Street at 3.45 p.m., killing all 23 on board, including former Secretary of War, Robert Patterson. Seven people on the ground also died. The two-engine convoy, carrying 20 passengers and crew, 
lost power and skimmed over the roof of the all-girl Batten High School, which had closed for the day less than an hour earlier. The plane somehow also missed other schools close by. But it didn't miss a three-story brick apartment building, crashing through the top floor and spinning into a two-family house where it came to rest on fire. The plane had sheared off the top of the apartment building and fuel set that building on fire as well. Everyone on the third floor died. In all, 27 people lost their life that cold January afternoon, including all crew and occupants of the plane, as well as the seven residents of Elizabeth. Ironically, Captain Thomas Reed, who piloted the plane, lived only a few blocks away from where the crash took place, and his wife, who was pregnant with their third child, actually heard the sound of the accident. That is a chilling bit of information, and yes, I've checked it, it is true. Terrible things, details, aren't they? The convoy was a half mile off course when it crashed, and investigators could not pinpoint a probable cause for the crew to be so far off course, so close to Newark. But some aviators who gave evidence said it appeared Reed took evasive action when he realized he was going to hit the girls' school. This second crash led Elizabeth Mayor James T. Cook to demand that Newark Airport be closed, a move opposed by the Port Authority because of two terminal illnesses called politics and greed. The airport owners pressurized local politicians to forego any action. They were worried about their profits. This was going to have grave implications for the town of Elizabeth. A third strike, unfortunately, was now required to wake up the Port Authority. Three weeks later, shortly after midnight on February 11th, strike three took place. A National Airlines DC-6 headed for Miami crashed into a four-story apartment building on Salem Avenue in Elizabeth shortly after takeoff. The wreckage was then sprayed around the playing fields of the Janet Memorial Home for Orphans as well as Westminster Avenue, and of the 63 on board, 29 died, along with four on the ground. Orphan boys from the Janet Memorial Home rushed to the crash and pulled survivors from the burning wreckage, delivering one young woman to the hospital in a hearse which was the only available vehicle at hand. The air crash investigation revealed both engines had failed. The reason has never been established. However, what was now an incontrovertible fact even for the intellectually challenged bureaucrats and fat cats of Elizabeth City was that there was a problem with Newark's runoff area. Here was a third accident in Elizabeth directly linked to Newark. And just to add a bit of mordancy, on the morning of the third accident, a congressional subcommittee had been scheduled to hear testimony in Elizabeth from residents who wanted Newark Airport closed that very morning. You can't make this stuff up, folks. The Port Authority, which argued against the closure, had sent out prepared press statements alleging Newark was one of the safest airports in America. What a PR disaster. So the Port Authority finally woke up to Newton's laws, shut down Newark immediately and then tried to stop newspapers from printing their earlier statement about how Newark Airport was one of the safest in America. Instead, Newark Airport had lived up to Elizabeth Mayor Kirk's description of being an umbrella of death. It stayed closed for commercial traffic until November 1952, when a new runway had been constructed that directed traffic on final or takeoff away from Elizabeth. President Truman quickly formed a commission to probe airport safety, headed up by war hero James Doolittle, he of the Tokyo bombing raid after Pearl Harbor, the very same James Doolittle, a hero was going to sort this lot out. Because the folks in the 50s didn't muck about, 
Truman gave Jimmy Doolittle 90 days to come up with recommendations. In May 1952, his report was handed to Truman well before deadline. It recommended longer clearways at the end of runways, as well as new zoning laws prohibiting hospitals, schools and houses of worship in a 30-degree fan-shaped area beyond the runway safety zone. These days, aviators know that part of our pre-takeoff briefing includes the mantra about looking for a landing area in an arc 30 degrees ahead if you have an engine failure on takeoff. Thank Jimmy Doolittle for that. I wonder how many lives have been saved because of this brilliant suggestion. Doolittle also warned about the growing problem of noise and suggested that the Air Force and commercial aviation be separated because combat aircraft are noisy. One of his most important zoning suggestions was that extensions and overrun areas be incorporated into the airport itself, owned by the airports, and that the areas beyond these be subjected to more stringent rules. No new airports, read the 1952 report, should be planned without clear and level areas at least 1,000 feet wide and half a mile long beyond each of the dominant runways. They also called for land to be condemned up front so that speculators couldn't move in and make a killing from existing landowners as these new rules were enforced. But there was not much anyone could do about the existing municipal airports around which suburbia, industria and residentia had grown quite quickly after World War II. Doolittle and the other boffins stipulated that runways should also be built longer because jets were on their way. This was still before the advent of full-blown jet aviation, but Doolittle knew what was going to happen. After all, the first turbojet-powered commercial airliner, the de Havilland Comet 1, had been awarded its Certificate of Airworthiness in that very year, 1952. I've been reading Doolittle's report, and it's so clearly written it should be used by business schools and modern NTSB officials as a template for how to communicate. Furthermore, he also suggested flight simulators be used more extensively and shared because they were expensive, which is what pretty much happens today. The Commission agreed with most of these recommendations and ordered that an airport certification system be introduced to certify the minimum standards for operations and for maintenance and for certification to be revoked if those standards were not met. By the way, Recommendation 25, offered up by Doolittle and his 1952 team, was for helicopters to be developed for civilian use. They said that inter-airport shuttle services, short-haul trips, and the ease of entry and exit meant the helicopter was going to become one of the most important aircraft of the future. He was right. With that, we'll wrap up this episode on obstacles near airports and the accidents. Next episode, we're going to hear about an air crew to die for, literally. Saudi Airlines Flight 163, the crash of 1980, is one of the most frustrating incidents you'll hear about. After a successful emergency landing because of a fire on board, the crew couldn't open the doors for three minutes because the captain kept the engines running. All 287 passengers and 14 crew on board the aircraft died from smoke inhalation. There's a tale here about lapses in crew communication and something the Johnny Kirkbottle's psychology guru calls power distances between junior and senior. Cockpit Resource Management, or CRM, was going to get a jolt, along with a new way to fight fires using halo systems instead of handheld fire extinguishers. These things do actually work. Take the recent crash at Tokyo's Haneda Airport as a case in point, where all 379 passengers and crew on board the Airbus A350 survived first a collision, 
with a Japanese Coast Guard plane and then a fire on landing. So, until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.